So, complacency. Complacency can be a killer, can't it? Complacency can be a killer. Um, I, I was reminded of just watching in horror, as I'm sure a, a load of us were back in June, as the, the tragedy aboard the Titan submersible took place. Um, it, was, it was built, of course, by uh, OceanGate, the company, um, to, to transport uh, fee-paying customers down to the, the wreck of the Titanic. It managed a few successful missions. But as we, as we all know now, it imploded on the, the 18th of June this year, and, and all five people on board uh, tragically lost their lives. And, and it's subsequently come to light, if you've been following the story, that, that warnings over the safety of the submersible were repeatedly dismissed by the CEO of the company. He was urged to seek certification uh, for the sub before using it for, for commercial dives, um, but he elected not to bother, it, it seems. He was complacent. In fact, he's reported as saying there was an email exchange that got put in the press with a, a leading deep-sea exploration specialist which said uh, that he was tired of industry players who try to use a safety argument to stop innovation. It's quite arrogant, isn't it? Uh, he was complacent, and, and the results were, well, they were catastrophic, weren't they? Complacency can be a killer. We are fools if we ignore the warnings of impending danger, aren't we? And, of course, if we do so, then we have only ourselves to blame, can't we? We can't blame somebody else if we've been warned and, and we're complacent about those warnings. But, you know, friends, um, it's entirely possible for Christians like you and me to also fall prey to complacency in our spiritual lives, isn't it? It's possible for professing Christians to just grow tired of the Christian life um, and, and allow our, our spiritual discipline, as it were, to, to slip. And, and I guess we can see why it happens, can't we? I mean, there are, you know, there are many pressures on us in, in, a, in a fallen world, aren't they, in which we live? I, I don't just mean the, the pressures of life which everyone faces, but I mean the particular pressures of living the Christian life. That can be tough, can't it? We, we don't live for Christ in a kind of benign environment, do we? We, we live for Christ in an antagonistic one. You know, maybe that's an unsympathetic family, or maybe it's, it's unbelieving work colleagues or school friends. Or, and it's hard, then, to live for Christ. There's great pressure on us that tempts us to be complacent, isn't there? Um, and we think to ourselves, well, why, why should I bother? Why keep following Christ when it's so hard? I've got a ton of other things to worry about in my life. It's just too hard to, to kind of keep up my relationship with God as well. Of course, it might not be that. Um, it, it might rather be that actually things are pretty good at the moment. You know, uh, we're, we're enjoying life. You know, relationships are going well. Work's going okay. The social life is fine. You know, we're not facing too many pressures at the moment. But, of course, the danger there is that we forget that it's God himself who's given us all of that, all those good things. And so we become self-dependent, don't we? Of course, we, we, we won't phrase it like this, but, but, but rather it will be our living that expose that, complacent living, living as if we don't need God. Well, friends, both of those kind of life situations, the hard times and the good times, can both have the same kind of dulling effect on us spiritually and cause us to become complacent, to, to kind of grow spiritually cold. I wonder if you recognize that. You recognize that? You know, maybe some signs would be that we're just not as ruthless with rooting out the sin in our lives as we used to be. 
Or, or maybe we're not quite as devoted to reading God's word as we once were. Or maybe our prayer lives aren't quite as passionate or frequent as they used to be. Or, or maybe our desire to be with God's people has just cooled off recently. Well, friends, that's why we need passages in Scripture like this, <laughs> like this psalm, that warn us from slipping into spiritual complacency. Um, on and off through the summer, we've, we've been dipping into uh, a few psalms together, a little collection of psalms I, I've called Psalms for Real Life, although, although, of course, in a sense, I could have picked any psalm, I think, under a title like that, because the whole book of psalms, of course, is full of the stuff of the real Christian life isn't it? And, and not just every conceivable circumstance of the Christian life, but every emotional dimension of the Christian life as well is represented in the Psalms. That's why we turn to it so often, because it points us to Christ from within the kind of whole raw, messy reality of, of Christian living, including in, in this Psalm here, those times when we need to be warned about spiritual complacency. And this, I think, is clearly what the psalm addresses. Uh, We don't know who wrote the psalm, um, or indeed when it was written, but the writer clearly thinks that his readers are in danger of becoming spiritually complacent. God had done so many wonderful things for them, but they need to obey the voice of God, otherwise they will suffer the, the consequences. And it's a psalm that the writer to Hebrews Uh, uses in the New Testament to warn New Testament Christians about the dangers of spiritual complacency. It's not the only passage to do that. Of course, the Bible slips in other passages like this one to warn us about this. For example, the Apostle Paul uh, uh, writes in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, you know, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. And and, and a passage like that and and this psalm here, they're, they're they're not written to kind of Uh, uh, cause us to doubt our salvation but rather to urge us to give ourselves a spiritual health check you know spiritual mot if you like to to make sure that we don't break down (laughs) that we don't slip uh, away from the from the great god who saved us so friends as we hear from the psalmist this morning can i encourage us not to have cold hearts that ignore the warnings but rather to humbly sit under God's word of scripture and hear and reflect on God's warnings to us not to be spiritually complacent Um, and I think the psalmist gives us two kinds of two kind of words here if you like to to help us in the battle against complacency he gives us a word of thanks that's the first half of the psalm verses one to seven Uh, and then he gives us a word of warning which is the second half of the psalm from the end of verse seven through to the end so notice firstly then a word of thanks in verses 1 to 7, although to call it just a word of thanks, it sounds a bit lame. Actually, it's a bit of an understatement. I think it's more like a word of ecstatic joy, isn't it? He's, he's delighted in God, the psalmist is here, isn't he? Uh, he's, he's overjoyed in him. Have a look at verse 1. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let's make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let's come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let's make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Do you see that God's people are being summoned here to join the psalmist in singing exuberant, um, enthusiastic, noisy (laughs) praise and acclamation to God. That that word come there is an an exhortation. So as one commentator put it, he's, he's kind of saying, come on now. Come and join me in this this shared, noisy celebration of God. 
Do you see? It's, it's a picture of a, of a glad people of God making a lot of very happy noise and doing so to the Lord, verse 1. Now, if you look ahead to verse 6, you'll see the same voice calling God's people to worship and bow down and kneel before the Lord your maker. So there we see the, the kind of exuberant, joyful people of God humbled, you know, on their knees, prostrate before God in, in worship. And, and there's, no, there's no contradiction there between singing that is both uh, exuberant and joyful and glad and yet expresses deep humility and reverence and awe. I realize that might challenge us a bit, you know, especially the the more emotionally reserved among us. (laughs) But there's no getting away from it here. The psalm calls its hearers to to a kind of a shared singing that moves both heart and body and in ways that express both joyful delight and deep humility. I wonder what you find easier. Do you find it easier to be deeply humble before God? Or do you find it easier to be exuberantly joyful before God? How, how could you foster both? What, what might that look like? So, thing to think about, I think. But the psalmist here, he's in no doubt that there is so much to delight in, okay, when it comes to God. And he, and he wants us to, to join him in that. And I think it's significant that he begins with thanksgiving. Because um, thanklessness is often the slippery slope to spiritual complacency. It, it, even eventually, denial of God altogether. And, and I think that's true in lots of areas, isn't it? Imagine that a... Um, Imagine that a friend buys me a gift and I don't bother to say thank you for it. Um, my, my thanklessness there reveals what I really think, doesn't it? Uh, both about the gift that I've been given and also the friend who gave me the gift. I'm, I'm effectively kind of saying that I, I consider both the friend and the gift pretty worthless, really. I'm ungrateful. And, and unless my ingratitude is stopped... I'll likely continue, and, and then it'll become, I'll become an even more ungrateful person, and, and my heart will harden further, and my friend will probably give up sending me gifts, and I probably won't even care, and, and, and that relationship will be broken, and it'll all have stemmed from my heartless ingratitude. And do you know, friends, the Apostle Paul uh, argues in, in Romans chapter 1 that that's precisely what happens between people and God. Humanity is thankless concerning both the character and the gifts of God, such that our hearts are hard towards him. We don't want to know him. We want to reject him. And so he gives us what we want, which is to rule our own lives instead, which is actually a mark of his judgment. Do do, do you see the point? And do you see that the way to avoid that slippery slope to destruction is thankfulness? It's to recognize that God is the great giver and that we live in dependence upon him. And so, friends, thankfulness is vitally important in the battle against complacency. The Christian will delight to give praise and thanks to God for who he is and what he's done. And and notice here what the psalmist is thankful for, because in every case, it's something about the character of God himself, that he is the rock 
um, that he is the king, that he's the creator. And that kind of raises another important point here, doesn't it? That we too need to get into the habit of praising and thanking God, not simply for what he does for us, but who he is, you know, in himself. See, if, if the whole focus of our praise and our thanks is on what God has done for us, well, there's a danger that even our gratitude is a bit self-obsessed, don't you think? I mean, it's right and good that we, we praise God for saving us and for, for helping us in our daily lives. But God's much more than, than just a God who's there to do things for us, you know, like a, like a kind of genie in a bottle. No, God is worthy of praise and adoration in and of himself. And the, and the Bible often urges us to praise him simply for who he is before we then go on and thank him for, for what he's done for us. And that's because, friends, the very fact that God does things for us is because of the kind of God he is. And maybe a takeaway here is, is that we might, we might ask ourselves whether we make it a habit simply to spend time with God praising and delighting in him for who he is. We, we do that. I think we find that very spiritually a very nourishing, very encouraging thing to do, just to praise him for his amazing character before we then focus on what he's done for us. We could just take a psalm like this, couldn't we? And just dwell on it and praise God for who he is. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord, the psalmist says. And what is it that he praises God for? Well, firstly, look, that God is our rock, verse 1. Oh, come and sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. That rock metaphor, of course, is used many times in the scriptures, isn't it? And, of course, it speaks of God's uh, total um, uh, dependence or dependability and, and immovability, right? He won't let us down, but he'll save us. And, and so immovable, so dependable is he that he's a place of rescue, a, a place of refuge, such that if we are in him, well, we're, we're saved and we're safe. Um, as many of you know, I, I love being in the mountains, and one of the things I love about being in the mountains is they don't change. You know, we, we were up in uh, the Lake District a couple of weeks ago, climbing a couple of mountains. We've been up uh, many times, just the same. You know, they get buffeted by wind and rain and hail and snow, you know, year after year, century after century. But nothing moves them. They're just big old hunks of rock. <laughs> They're not going anywhere. They just stand firm. And friends, that's what God is like. That's why David could say of God, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, the rock in whom I take refuge. Friends, when everything around us may fail may collapse. God never will. He's our rock and the rock of our salvation, the only place of rescue and refuge. Um, but notice another reason for praise there, verses 2 and 3, is that God is our king. Let's come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let's make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Why? For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. Do you see? God is the great king. There's, there's no other like him and there's no God apart from him. He's the one. Right? The one enthroned in the heavens. 
The one who rules and sustains the universe. The one who will one day bring justice and judgment on the earth. How we need to remember that in a world full of uncertainties, there is only one God and he is the king. He's the king. Uh, And then thirdly, look, the psalmist praises God because he's our creator. Verse 4, in his hand are the depths of the earth and the heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his for he made it and his hands formed the dry land, you see. God is the loving and great creator of the world and he watches over everything. Everything from the highest mountains to the lowest depths. And friends, the more we discover of the great order and beauty and complexity of the world the more we ought to be amazed at the glory and wisdom of God he's the creator and he's made an incredible world for us look around and see that he is our creator but now have a look at verse 6 because what does the psalmist want us to do in response to who God is oh come let us worship and bow down Let us kneel before the Lord our maker for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Do you see the response? We bow before him in adoration that he is God and that he saved us because we're his people. He's our shepherd, we're his flock and we don't deserve his his grace and his mercy and his protection but that is the kind of God he is. He's our rock, he's our king. He's our creator. Do you see, friends, that's the reason that the psalmist calls us to join him in praise. It's because of who God is. And, friends, such praise of God's character is not limited by our circumstances. In other words, whether we're having a good patch or a bad patch, we're called upon to praise God here because his character is unchanging. So it's not that we'll necessarily feel, you know, joyful or happy or whatever, but it's rather that God's character is something always to delight in, whatever our earthly circumstances. And in fact, praising and delighting in God for who he is is, is actually an, an incredible tonic for, for our souls. So what about us, friends? How do we feel about praising and thanking God for who he is, regardless of our circumstances? Do we do, we do that? Do we, do we not do that? There's a challenge for us there, isn't there? Because the psalmist here knows all too well that thankfulness is the first step in the road in guarding against complacency. And we are thankful people. But there's not only a word of thankfulness in the psalm, but there's a word of warning as well in verses 7, end of verse 7 through to 11. And at first glance, I don't know if you picked this up when we read it, the second half of the psalm, it seems totally out of place with the first half. Did you notice that? There's a real kind of change of gear that happens at the end of verse 7, isn't there? Where this great psalm of calling us to praise suddenly shifts into being a very serious psalm of warning. Doesn't it? In fact, some, some of the commentators have thought maybe this was two different psalms kind of stitched together. Um, but I, I, I think that misses the point entirely. Um, the, the, the point the psalmist is making here, which is that it's entirely possible to agree, you know, intellectually at least, that God is great and awesome. He's the, the rock and the king and the creator, but still to functionally turn your back on him and, and, and ignore him and, and turn away from him. 
slip away from him. Do you see? The psalmist's point here is that despite verses 1 to 7, despite who he is, we can still have a heart that's cold towards God. And so this second half warns us about spiritual complacency. In fact, in in centuries past, um, those more liturgical parts of the church would recite this psalm, uh, maybe even daily. So it was called the venite, which is is the Latin word for O come, there in in verse 1. And it was in the old prayer book for the the Church of England, for those up and down the land to recite uh, every morning uh, to remind them not to grow complacent. You know, but surely we might think, well, well, we wouldn't harden our hearts. We wouldn't turn our backs on God, would we? Especially after reading in the psalm of who he is, uh, what he's done. Well, actually, the psalmist thinks otherwise. (laughs) Just listen to my warning, he says, before you get too complacent. So let's do that. Let's hear the psalmist's warning to, to his generation and then see how that might apply to us in our generation. Have a look at the end of verse 7. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. So he's speaking the words of God here, isn't he? And he's warning his hearers not to be like the people of Israel many years before in those places of Massa and Meribah. And he's referring there to an incident that took place back in in Exodus chapter 17 in the Old Testament, where the people of Israel, they've just been rescued. Some of you will know the story. They've just been rescued from the Egyptians. And in doing so, of course, they have seen God do some incredible things, haven't they? They've witnessed the ten plagues in Egypt for a start, and then the pillars of, of cloud and fire that led them by day and night across the wilderness. They've seen the Red Sea divide in front of their very eyes and then close up again, swallowing the entire Egyptian army. So as verse 8 says, they had indeed seen God's work. And what powerful work it was. God had done amazing things to rescue them, and they'd witnessed it all. But then we know what happened, don't we? If you know the story, you will. They started grumbling and complaining, didn't they? We haven't got any water to drink. You know, they even questioned why they had to leave Egypt in the first place. We were better off back there, they said. Can you imagine it? Five minutes down the road, having been dramatically and powerfully rescued, and they're grumbling about their rescuer. As though the powerful God who saved them wouldn't then provide for those he'd saved. It's nuts, isn't it? But that's what they did. And so the place where they grumbled became known as Massa, which means testing, because they tested God there. And also Meribah, which means quarreling, because they quarreled with God there. And and that episode in Israel's history, the psalmist is saying, kind of perfectly captures their general attitude to God, which was one of ingratitude and distrust. And so what does the psalmist say happened, verse 10, when he quotes God as saying, for 40 years I loathed that generation and said there are people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. And if you know know the story, you'll know what he's referring to there. All the people who complained so appallingly against God were not allowed to enter the promised land, what God 
calls there his rest, a place where they would rest from their journey, from their labors. Do you, do you see the point? Every single one of those hundreds of thousands of people who came out of Egypt, including Moses himself, died in the desert and never saw God's rest. All apart from two, it is, that remained faithful. And all of that happened, verse 10 says, because they went astray from God in their hearts. In other words, they refused to trust him, but they just hardened their hearts against him instead. So you see, it does happen, says the psalmist. In fact, your forefathers, they hardened their hearts against God, even after everything they'd seen him do for them. They still refused to trust him. And they paid the price. So the application for the psalmist's audience is verse 8. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah. In other words, don't ignore God's word to you today. Don't be complacent like them. Trust God's promises today. Don't fall into the same trap of ignoring God. Otherwise, you too will risk finding yourselves not entering God's rest. So if if that was the warning to God's people in the psalmist generation, what's the warning for us today? Well, the writer to Hebrews, he, he takes this psalm and he applies it to us as New Testament people of God, as followers of Jesus. So I wonder if you turn with me to, uh, it's page 1002 in your Bibles, Hebrews chapters, uh, Hebrews, the book of Hebrews chapters 3 and 4, um, page 1002. And have a look at Hebrews 3, verse 7 there, which says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today... If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. In other words, the writer to Hebrews here is telling us, telling New Testament Christians, that the Holy Spirit continues to speak a powerful contemporary message through the words of this this ancient psalm. Do you see the point? God's message here is the same around 800 BC or whenever the first psalm, that psalm was first written. And it's the same in 60 AD when Hebrews was written. And the message is the same for us in 2023 because the Holy Spirit speaks the same message. And the message is don't harden your hearts. What does that mean in practice? Well, the the writer to Hebrews goes on to spell that out. Look in verses 12 to 14. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. In other words, he's saying that we need to encourage one another to keep believing the the promises of God in the gospel, keep walking with God today. Because if we ignore God's word to us in Christ, we're hardening our hearts against him. We're in danger of drifting away from him. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 2, the writers already used that kind of drifting metaphor to show what was happening with these Christians, these Hebrew Christians that he was writing to. 
they were in danger of drifting off, you know, like little boats whose, whose moorings have, have, have come loose and, and now they're just drifting off on the tide. That's the warning here in Hebrews and in the psalm as well. And it's the warning, friends, not to drift away. And that in order to stop the drift, we need to act today. In other words, being a Christian is a daily exercise of faith in God's promises, faith in the gospel. And one that we can't afford to slacken off on. Because the moment we slacken off, we're allowing those, those kind of mooring ropes to, to come loose. And, and they'll slip, slowly but surely. See, friends, it's not that God hasn't promised to keep us. He has. And his promises are sure and they're trustworthy. But, friends, we are not passive in that process. Right? The flip side, if you like, of God's promise to keep us going in the Christian life is that we must keep acting in faith. We need to keep believing the gospel promises. We need to keep living the life that God calls us to live. We need to actively live out the promises of God each day. And if we don't, well, the writer here is very clear. We're in danger of missing out on God's rest, which is his way here of talking about heaven, of course. And that's because our constant ignoring of God's warnings, our persistent slipping away from him, actually reveals what our hearts are like. And we reveal our hearts to be hard-hearted towards God. And as we've seen, there's no place in heaven, friends, for those whose hearts are hardened to God. So the second half of this psalm, it's it's actually a pretty hard-hitting bit of scripture, isn't it? It's one of those passages that kind of fires a warning shot across our bowels. Not to slide into spiritual complacency, not to drift off into it, because it's just so serious. So so I guess a question that each of us, I I think, needs to ask ourselves here is whether we are doing that. Whether we're we're obedient to God's word today. You know, it may be that things are going well for you at the moment. Maybe that you are walking with God daily. Praise God. But, you know, there's, there's still a warning here, isn't there? That complacency can lurk around the next corner. So we don't want to get proud of our spiritual stability. But rather, we want to be dependent upon God today, just like yesterday. And, and do the same tomorrow. Because it's by remaining obedient and dependent upon him that we keep ourselves from from drifting away. But it may be that you recognize yourself here in this psalm, and and if you've been honest with yourself, you you may have come to see that you have slipped away, you know, that the spiritual moorings have have worked loose, that you're drifting from God and his promises to you in Christ. Well, friends, the right response here is not just to feel guilty or regretful, but it's rather to hear the word of the Lord today and act on it. And not harden your heart anymore, but come back to the Lord who loves you and make a fresh start with him. You know, maybe you know that you've allowed sin to dominate your life in a particular way just recently. Or maybe church hasn't been a priority for you in these last weeks or months. Or maybe God's word and prayer has just got little place in your life at the moment. But if God is speaking to you today, and of course he is speaking to us as we open his word. Please don't harden your heart to his voice, but rather repent and come back to him. Because to hear God's voice in the scriptures and then not to repent, 
But to be spiritually complacent, to harden your heart and ignore God's warnings, well, that's, that's foolish in the extreme, isn't it? Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. But I'd love to end and look at this psalm briefly with a word, for here, a word here for, for anyone who wouldn't claim to be a Christian here. Um, you know, maybe, maybe you've been coming for a while, maybe you're just visiting, you're on holiday. You know you haven't yet trusted your life to Jesus Christ. Well, friend, none of us knows how many more warnings we'll receive. We don't know how long we've got left on, on the planet, even, do we, to be blunt. But even if we've got many years left, the more we persistently ignore God's warnings, the easier it becomes for our hearts to stay hard. So can I ask you, what, what holds you back from trusting Christ if you haven't done that already? And are you going to continue to resist him? Because if so, I think you're playing a dangerous game. And, and I'd urge you not to delay, but, but to, to fling yourself into God's loving arms today. Because that's the only place of safety in, in the storm of God's judgment, which will come. See, friends, both the psalmist and the writer to Hebrews here, they're warning us of the, in the same way not to be spiritually complacent. And, and whether we would claim to be Christians this morning or not, we all need to hear, I think, what the Lord is saying here and obey both his word of thanks and his word of warning. For today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. We pray. Let's pray. Father, we praise and thank you for who you are. Thank you that you're our rock, you're our king, you're our creator, our maker. And as such, you're worthy of both the praise of our lips and our lives with, with singing and living that reflects a humble reverence and exuberant rejoicing. And all this regardless of our circumstances, but simply in response to who you are. Father, would you help us to heed the warning of this psalm, not to slip into spiritual complacency, into ingratitude and distrust of your word. Father, if that's us this morning, help us not to harden our hearts against you, but lead us to repentance, lead us to fresh trust in your promises to us in Jesus. All of this we pray in his name. Amen.